Libros Schmibros is a podcast exploring the people, books, movies, and ideas that Angelinos care about in a thoughtful way that even New Yorkers can understand. We're coming to you from Libros Schmibros, our nonprofit bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights, on the west coast of the country and the east bank of the mighty Los Angeles River. It's David Kippen at Libros Schmibros. Today, I'm going to talk with John Logan, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of The Aviator and RKO 281, and in this case, of the new Showtime series, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. That's right, City of Angels as in Los Angeles, because a lot of it takes place in Belvedere Heights, which is a coded, slightly stylized version of Boyle Heights. I really hope you like it. Hello, is this John Logan? Yes, it is. Oh, hi. What a, what a treat to finally talk with you. I'm David Kippen. <laughs> Indeed. Ah. Indeed. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, I can't Zoom. I've had just the worst Zoom <laughs> experience. Like the last week, my computer's like, no, you're not connecting to this Zoom, my friend. And it's like, you know, you have like play readings and things. It's like, oh, for God's sake. So anyway, good to talk to you. Very good to talk to you. I think we've all had, had enough Zoom to last us a lifetime these days. Yeah, not me, though. I'm like, the one good thing to come out of all of this is like, you mean I don't need to get in my car and drive for an hour and a half to have a meeting? Okay, I can, I can live with that. You know, I'm finding it, and weirdly, it's, you know, I do a lot of theater work. It's really good for doing readings, you know, because I'm oh. working on a musical now. We've done a bunch of readings, and it's, like, very helpful just to, like, hear the whole piece without flying halfway across the world and bringing everyone in at that expense. So there are a few, uh, a few um, you know, bright spots. Oh, I, I'm glad to hear that. I'll, I'll keep looking harder for my own. <laughs> you keep, yeah, look a little harder. Um, well, let me just, I guess, uh, you know, set the rules of engagement here. Um, I'm sure you get interviewed all the time, so just to recap, I, my name is David Kipp, and I run a nonprofit lending library in Boyle Heights called Libro Schmibros. I'm also a critic at large for the LA Times. And um, we've been having, starting to have, so by all means, cut us some slack for any, any growing pains, these conversations, especially with screenwriters, because um, I wrote a book years ago called The Schreiber Theory, in which you actually appear. Um, ah, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. And so you being a screenwriter, um, why don't you, uh, in the theater of listeners' minds, set the scene for us? If not in your car, if not on a soundstage, where have we found you? You have found me at my home and uh, where I've been safely locked down for the last uh, two months in my uh, office where I always work. Um, you know, I, I usually get, get up very, very early to work, you know, usually by four. Yeah. So I'm well into my, I'm well into my day by now. Oh, it's, it's no great miracle because I also go to bed at eight. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, believe me, it's not, it's not like I'm a Superman. Uh, so I've been up and at it working away, and, you know, it's, I'm in the midst of doing all the posts for Penny Dreadful, so it's all by remote, so it, that entails hundreds and hundreds of sort of emails and links to every music queue and special effects queue and things. So I've been sorting through that uh, gradually this morning. Yikes. Um, well, I, I feel a little less guilty about interrupting you now. No, um, don't. I'm happy. I'm happy to, to not be looking at another music queue. So in this office, uh, in this house, um, as, as, a, as a charter member and I think uh, supporter of the Library of America, which I know you are, would I be mistaken in, in assuming there might be at least one book in the same room with you? Yes, I am. 
I am surrounded by books. I have I have a bookshelf filled with the yet to be read books. Oh. You know, because I'm I'm sort of compulsive, you know, reader of book reviews. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting. I don't know much about the life of Grant Wood. I should get that book. <laughs> you know, and just you know, and like you know what? I haven't read that Nero Wolf novel. Let's get that for a trip sometime. So I'm yes, I'm surrounded with books, and and mostly if you could see it, and this is why the show we can't zoom piles and piles of research because you know every pro. I do a lot of historical material. Yeah. Every project is just mounds and mounds and mounds of work, and you know you can only do so much work online. I you know I need I'm of a generation that needs a paper and a pen to actually mm. take notes. So, you know, currently, you know, I'm working on a movie about Michael Jackson, so I have, you know, just stacks and stacks of books and notes and interview notes and things so that are taking over one entire part of uh, part of the office. Well, how nice for you that on a project like Penny Dreadful, uh, you didn't have to worry about research. You could just sort of sit back and make it yeah, up. Yeah, I could just make it all up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a, you know, it's like, you know, when people ask me, well, like, what's the most research you've done for anything? I'm like, well, you know, you know, I wrote a play about Mark Rothko that took about a year of research. I well know it and appreciate it. Right. And, and then when I wrote The Aviator, that was four years of research. You know, and, and Penny Dreadful, you know, the, the new one, not the old one, um, was, has been years of in, in the making and researching because I love, you know, I love Los Angeles, love the history, and it's not onerous, it's, it's pleasurable. But to me, when you're dealing with any historical character or epoch, you know, the, the devil's in the details, and you might turn one page that will unlock something. You know, it's, it's a bit the Robert Caro you yeah. know, idea, which is you kind of have to read everything because, because doors will be open to things you didn't expect, and you might think, well, that's an interesting character or interesting confrontation or interesting moment in the drama. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in reading, reading and noting everything. Well, um, since Libros Libros is in Boyle Heights, and, yeah. and I and a lot of us are longstanding obsessives with Los Angeles, I'm curious, for example, what page did you turn as you were working on Penny Dreadful that had that kind of epiphany for you, that unlocked some of the story that you were hoping to tell in your research? It was, you know, I started, I started sort of researching the freeways, mm-hmm. uh, the Arroyo Seca, which is our first freeway, as you know. Uh, and in Boyle Heights, you know it very well. And I was looking at a 1937, year before our show was set, mm-hmm. um, city council plan for, hey, if we start building freeways, here's where we'll build them. And they had various plans of various freeway routes lined out. And that, that map included things like the Beverly Hills Freeway, yeah. the Pacific Coast Freeway, you know, and I was just stunned looking at those lines and knowing where the freeways existed. And then, you know, we just researched and researched and researched why the freeways were built, when they were built, and what did that do to the communities around them. And, you know, the stunning fact is that in 1937, Los Angeles would have had some very sensible freeway lanes everywhere. But the only one, 100% of the ones that were built were East L.A., you know, and South of the city. You know, and in the Latino and African American neighborhoods, you know, and mm-hmm. that's why we don't have North Main Street anymore, and that's why we don't have Sonora Town or the Chavez Ravine in a way, or Sugar Hill, you know, or or Bunker Hill the way it was, because that's the where the freeways were built. So, 
So a good example of turning a page is just looking at that, looking at those studies of of proposed freeways, and then looking at what exists now. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly comes across in the show, which which I regret to say I've only seen six episodes of, but I think that's two more episodes than most people. And it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like the ink is still on the last episode or two, even now. Um, right. So I will I will uh, um, uh, sit on the edge of my chair along with the rest of America for that. Um, how do you think that this story of Los Angeles? Well, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. You're you're a Californian of sorts. Were you not born? Oh, well, in San I was Diego? born I was born in San Diego, um, and I lived in in Chula Vista, in San Pedro. Uh, in Hollywood Hills for a while, you know, and so, you know, I've lived on and off in California periodically, but my father's a naval architect, so we sort of moved from port city to port city growing up, so I lived in, I lived in Mississippi, I lived in New Jersey a lot, you know, I live in various places, um, but California is always where we came back to, and it's, and it's certainly my, my roots and my, my native soil. And since, you know, I, looking <laughs> over your filmography, your, your, your interest in myths and mythology and myth-making um, does kind of jump out at a person. How was that nurtured growing up? Were you like a captive of Edith Hamilton or w- w- comic no, books? No, it was, it, was, it was Shakespeare. It was, really? it, was, it was watching Olivier's Hamlet when I was eight, which my dad made me do, um, and just falling in love with Shakespeare and you know, reading those plays way too young. <laughs> and trying to understand them and watching all the movies that, that I could, you know, particularly the, the three Olivier movies, which were the most accessible, mm-hmm. you know, and just falling in love with the power and poetry and majesty of what Shakespeare was doing. And, you know, any dramatist will tell you that, you know, there's two kinds of dramatists. There's the Chekhov dramatist and there's the Shakespeare dramatist. And the che- Chekhov dramatist can, you know, break your heart with a tiny little gesture, you know, a guitar string snaps and the world ends. And that's a beautiful, delicate way of writing. And it's not what I do. And it's not what I can do. And I'm in awe of those who do it so successfully. And then there's a Shakespearean model, which makes a grand, sweeping, passionate, thunderous gesture, you know, and, and isn't afraid to, to sort of bat for the stars um, with real grandiosity. And that's always what I've been drawn to, probably because Shakespeare and musical theater was what I fell in love with first. Um, so that's, that's sort of where my attraction to those larger-than-life characters and sort of operatic scope and no fear of melodrama that I think informs probably most of my work. Well, we, you know, you talk about adaptations and feeling a certain responsibility to the source material. How much do you have felt when you sat down to adapt Coriolanus? Well... A fair piece, needless to say. But thankfully, Coriolanus is one of Shakespeare's least beloved plays. You know, it's not like you're approaching the monolith that is Hamlet. You're approaching the, the sort of scuzzy little child that some people love, but most people don't. Um, so Ray Fiennes and I just said, look, let's just do this movie, you know, and purists will be offended as well they should be. And, uh, but we'll get a chance to, to dive in and collaborate with, with Shakespeare. You know, honestly... You know, doing, doing Coriolanus is a lot less intimidating than doing Sweeney Todd, you know, when you're oh. sitting across from Stephen Sondheim and saying, well, now here's your masterwork score, and we have to cut half of it. 
<laughs> you know, so, so, but, but adaptations are, are tricky things because you're right to say they're a complete collaboration with the author, you know, of the original text. And whether that's, you know, Brian Selvick on Hugo, you know, or, or even Ian Fleming on the Bond films, you always have that other writer over your shoulder. And I believe in a brotherhood of writers. I believe in respecting their work, you know, as much as possible. And I would like to think your blood and thunder William Shakespeare would see our version of Coriolanus and say, okay, yeah, they, they had some fun with this. It's, it's violent. It's exciting. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, avoid the emotion of the piece. You know, could, could have been three hours longer, but otherwise okay. <laughs> Do you have – now, you and I uh, only ever corresponded because I was interviewing Scott Berg when his biography of Woodrow Wilson came out. And we got to talking about Maxwell Perkins, who's right. uh, who is the subject of, of Berg's first biography, and he, I gather, um, came in, swam into your ken because you fell in love with with that book, with his biography of Maxwell Perkins, and the relationship between him and Thomas Wolfe, which became um, your movie genius. Or, or should I? Well, this opens up a whole kettle of worms. But um, is it your movie genius or Michael Grandage's movie genius? Or well, it's, well, it's you... our movie. You know, any any writer is going to deny the authorial credit to a director. You know, and with all respect, you know, I've worked with great directors. You know, and that was my goal for my very first movie is to, is to work with directors because that would always be my joy in the theater. You know, and the closest collaboration that a writer ever has is with a director, whether it's on straight stage or TV or film. And so, you know, I always feel the best work I do is when I'm working with collaborators who respect what I do and I respect what they do. Um, you know, so I, to me, it's always our film, um, you know, which, which might be a little audacious, but, you know, that's, that's what I think. Well, you know, having written a whole book very skeptical about the auteur theory, as I did, I, I can't help feeling a little vindicated to look at the television landscape nowadays. Mm. And yeah see how the showrunner has basically, you know, it, it, we talk about him the way we would once have talking about, uh, talked about auteurs in film. Um, right. What's it like making television right now? Do you feel like your job is the same as it always was as a writer? Are you, no, are you an auteur, God forbid, as, uh, as well, the showrunner you know, of Penny Dreadful? It's, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, the vision is mine. Mm -hmm. I created it. You love it or hate it, it's the show I want to make. And every frame is the frame I want it to be, and every word is the word I want it to be. Um, which on one hand is, you know, a titanic amount of power, but it's also an awesome responsibility to the collaborators you're working with. And my friend Catherine Bigelow, when I was first starting out on this, said to me, you let your thoroughbreds run. <laughs> Meaning, if you're working with great artists, let them go. You're not the jockey, they are, you know. And so I liken it to being, you know, I'm the admiral, but I'm not the captain of the ship, you know, and I'm happy mm -hmm. to be the admiral, you know. And, but, I, but at the end of the day, you know, as, as President Truman said, the buck truly stops with me. Yeah. And love it or hate it, it's the show that, that I always imagined in my head. What's it like working with episode directors who have grown up thinking of themselves as auteurs and finding themselves serving somebody else's vision for a change. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's all, it's being very comfortable on, on Penny Dreadful, because um, I think they go in with a certain expectation of who I am and what, what I've done with this show. And we always have big conversations about it, you know, about, about, about how we finesse being on the set, for example, 
and what I do and what I don't do, you know, and what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not comfortable with. And it's, you know, for the most part, it's been fine. I've overreached, you know, and I've had to pull back, which is correct, you know, and the other way as well. So it's, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little um, pas de deux that you do with a series director. Because of my experience in film on stage, you know, where I cut my teeth with Oliver Stone and Ridley Scott and Michael Mann and Marty Scorsese, with Michael mm-hmm. Grandage, with Bob Fall, with Alex Timbers, my respect for directors is so extreme that, you know, I am always willing to let a director try anything they want, explore, tease it out, because I'm not a director. It's not a gift I have. I have no interest in doing that job. If you said to me, you and me are sitting across the table, put a camera and film it, I wouldn't know where to start. So, you know, I, I know what I do, and I... More importantly, I know what I don't do. Got it. Huh. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Boyle Heights, which in Penny Dreadful we, we know as Belvedere Heights. I mean, just superficially, how was that decision taken? It's, you know, it, Belvedere Heights is sort of a, a conglomeration of a number of neighborhoods that were, that were sort of destroyed when the Arroyo Seco was built. It's not an actual neighborhood. There was a neighborhood called Belvedere then. Mm-hmm. You know, and a number of other ones. There was what we refer to as Sonora Town, which was also Sonora Town at the time, which was closer to the city, um, which is you know sort of where if you, if you follow the the sort of Arroyo Seco from the music center on, mm-hmm. you'd be running into that, and of course Boyle Heights as well. So it, we wanted to create a fictional. Not we, I wanted to create a fictional <laughs> community because I wanted to be able to do with it as I will, as was appropriate to what the story. Um, was, and you know, at, at its heart, this is a story about the building of a freeway. Um, so I had to create the dynamics that would allow the characters to do what I felt was necessary without being too tied to specific streets in specific neighborhoods. Um, well, so much of Los Angeles' mythology um, is, is, is every bit as much about the myth of the freeway as it is about mythic characters. Um, you, uh, and, and you're not the first filmmaker to deal with this. I, I hope I can call you a filmmaker. Um, and, uh, so how did you, how did you feel as if what you were working on, um, was entering into the tradition of, you know, movies like LA Confidential, which begins with the opening of a freeway and certainly, mm-hmm. um, you know, Chinatown before that. How does mm-hmm. Penny Dreadful make its way into the canon of, of, uh, LA filmmaking? Well, I think I think that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it because no one asked that question. But, you know, it, you're talking about wrong interviews. I, I think it's yeah, it's totally. I think it's the right. <laughs> uh, I think it's the right question to ask because you know when most people think of the 30s you know, in L.A., they think of Metro Golden Mayor. They think of Hollywood, and this is not a story about Hollywood. It's a story about downtown and about and about dispossessed and marginalized communities. You know, it's not a celebration of of Ruby Keeler. It was always intended to be anti, not anti-Hollywood, but not to deal with that story in any way at all, because that's not the story we wanted to tell. And, you know, and the, the motivation for writing it had to do with the response to the, the seismic changes in the world around us in the last four years, and the parallels between then and now, which I think are so, so profound and, and sort of shockingly and sadly becoming more profound as every day passes right now. But, you know, we were aware there is this sort of 
there is um, a mythology, a cinematic mythology already built around Los Angeles. It's mostly noir, you know, and so what we did, you know, working with the directors and the DPs was go anti-noir, you mm. know, no candid angles, no dark, wet alleys. This is about sun-baked <laughs> Los Angeles, you know, and, and I watched everything, you know, and I think that the triptych for me that were most useful in terms of the tone of the show uh, was Chinatown. Mm-hmm. So I think John Alonzo and Polanski captured something very real about Los Angeles without falling into noir tropes. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A., which I, oh. think also kept, which I think captures something sort of harsh and crotocom and violent about the underbelly of the city and uh, really heat and collateral. You know, the way Michael Mann views Los Angeles as a complete organism Mm-hmm. and the, the subsets or tribes that he chooses to deal with, in, in those cases criminal, you know, are related to a larger social context, the way he presents them. So those three movies or four movies sort of became a real sort of thing that I studied a lot and thought about, both in terms of when do I want to emulate and when do I want to avoid, you know, in terms of making something, something unique. But because of the specificity of this show, you know, early 1938, about politics, about the freeway, about crime, about, you know, folk Catholicism. You know, it led to very yeah. specific um, avenues of exploration. It has its own DNA that I hope pays honor to filmmakers of the past, but also, you know, tries to do something new and, and contemporary. Oh, it absolutely does. And I, I'm thrilled to hear somebody else mention To Live and Die in L.A. because oh, yeah. the just, you know, as pure storytelling, the way that the hero of that movie disappears 20 minutes from the end. I the know. It's, the, it's, the, it's Psycho in reverse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, oh, uh, nice to meet a kindred spirit on that one. Now, you're speaking of, of um, you know, great L.A. movies past. Um, what about L.A. books that have, that have fed your understanding of and, and vision for the city? No, it's, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, all the, the standard histories and particularly the engineering and, and sort of architecture and design histories of, of Los Angeles, in terms of, in terms of sort of tone or sensibility, what I absorbed was Nathaniel West, oh. Chandler, uh, and particularly Dashiell Hammett, even though obviously he dealt oh. mostly with Northern California. There's something about the, the sort, of, sort of subdued honesty of his books without undue metaphors that I found sort of brutally exciting. You know, and if you read a book like Red Harvest, you uh-huh. know, as you know, is a collection of of, of Lop stories, sort of sort of cobbled together in the Dane Curse. Mm-hmm. You know, what you find is is a, a very flawed hero trying to move through a world that's even more flawed than he is. You know, yeah. and those two books were probably weirdly the most uh, influential. You know, although for sheer reading enjoyment, you know, Raymond Chandler. You know, you can't beat, and The Big Sleep was written exactly 1938, mm-hmm. you know, and Nathaniel West offers, you know, such a poetic and harsh um, viewpoint of Los Angeles, both in Day of the Locust, you know, even in Miss Lonely Hearts and, and sort of other his work. Those three were the most significant for me in terms of other writers, per se. Yeah, Miss Lonely Hearts. I was just reading the new Michael Connolly novel, and the killer in it is called Shrike, who I think is the editor in this Lonely yeah, Hearts. Got to be intentional. You don't, you don't hit on that name by mistake. <laughs> um, well, wow. Um, now, uh, writing about Boyle Heights, 
um, you know, surely uh, you, you, you knew you were at risk, at risk of getting some grief because it's become a slightly contested place and who gets the right about it, who doesn't get the right about it. You know, is that something that factored into your thinking? Has there been any sort of blowback since the show came out into daylight? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a provocative question, you know, and there's a philosophical answer and there's a practical answer. The practical answer is, you know, once I centered on a Latino detective and his family, I realized that I needed help, you know, for authenticity, uh, for texture and details that I could not know. Um, so I was very careful about, you know, my producing partner, Michael Aguilar, two of our directors, two of the writers, you know, were, were Latino, were Hispanic. So they could bring that viewpoint to it. And certainly all the actors are very vocal, you know, as well, which I welcome heartily, mm-hmm. you know. And I asked, you know, Diego Rivera, who wrote our, um, our fifth episode, to pass through all ten episodes. Mm-hmm. He said, like, do, do an authenticity pass. You know, let me know what's not feeling right with the understanding that a contemporary, you know, person will not necessarily understand or be able to appreciate the subtlety of 1938 politics or, or social interaction. So that's the practical answer. Um, the philosophical answer is I absolutely reject the idea of balkanization in the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe writers need to be able to write and dream and imagine in characters other than themselves and in voices that are not their voices. You know, and I don't want to live in a world where Lin-Manuel can't write George Washington or George Gershwin <laughs> can't write Bess or I can't write Mark Rothko. You know, the idea yeah. of cultural appropriation to me is venomous and dangerous um, because I think if you get boxed in creatively as an artist, you're finished, you know, and you have to be able to look beyond your own self to be able to create. Understood. Now, when you mention your, your, the other writers in the writer's room with you, um, that's, that's kind of a, what, what is it like? I mean, totally unlike it or even unlike writing for film where at least presumably you have a draft you can call your own. What's it like superintending an atelier of other writers rather than it just being you alone in the room? Well, this is the first time I've ever done it and I found mm-hmm. it incredibly exciting. You know, Did you not even do it for the first couple no, of No, we brought two other Redford? writers in for the last season to write two episodes, but I just sort mm-hmm. of sat with them. Yeah. And we talked. This was a proper writing room. I'd written the first four episodes, and then we charted out the rest of the season, you know, very much hand in glove, and everyone around the table all the time. And it was so exciting. And, you know, originally I had, I had fears. I was like, uh-oh, am I going to feel I'm going to lose authorship? Am I going to get uppity about all this? <laughs> you know, but I didn't because they were smart ideas. And, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say to you, any good idea is welcome. And uh, it was it was thrilling working with with other writers with other perspectives on the material and and you know they had viewpoints on the characters I didn't have, and the more complex the characters are, the more interesting they are, and the more you want to write them, and the more the audience wants to see them. I believe, um, so it ended up being a, a, a tremendously exciting experience, and I, I know they're all proud of their work on the show, so that's uh, that means a lot to me as well. And they wrote great episodes. I'm glad you mentioned Jose Rivera because um, one of the things that we're uh, planning to do um, at, at Libros and with this podcast is to have um, basically writer commentary tracks, the way that we're all so conditioned to expect director commentary tracks, that people can go to our website and listen to the writers 
uh, perspective on how a movie came to be. And one of the first well, ones, one of the first ones we wanted to do is to have Mr. Rivera do um, uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, which is an incredibly popular movie with us uh, in the shop. Um, I guess I, I should ask you: Have you ever been invited to do such a thing? Is it is it a, a prospect you would entertain? Uh, I would. I mean, I've been invited to do a lot of DVD commentaries, all of which I've turned down, um, mm. because I believe the, the the work needs to speak for itself. Um, on the other hand, something about the nuts and bolts of how things come together is always exciting if people are really interested in it. I'm not sure how interested people are, but if they <laughs> are, you know, I'm always I'm always happy to talk about it. Huh. So, so is it something you would be readier to do with a a, a, a a work like Penny Dreadful than you would have been on something before? Probably, yeah, because it's so. I, I'd be ready to do it in a play in a second because a play is about you know total total playwright authorship and and sort of laboring away in your dark little room. Um, and you know, Penny Dreadful is much like that too until the point of collaboration comes. But then it's all about you know what other artists bring to it, which is which is for me, frankly, the most exciting part. You know, I love writing drafts, you know, why do I get up early in the morning? Because I love my job. I also love engaging with other artists, which is why doing television is so rewarding, because I'm given a chance to do that. It's also what's so rewarding about theater, by the way, because in theater, you know, as you know, you're all in the same room all at the same time, where movies tend to be a little more divided up in terms of who's participating when mm -hmm. uh, in the process. Well, in... Preparing for this interview, um, it wasn't just a question of trying to winkle as many advanced episodes of Penny Dreadful out of Showtime as I possibly could, but I also wanted to go back at least to some of your work I'd always meant to watch and never caught up with. And that's how I came night before last to be watching a really crappy YouTube uh, dub uh, captioned in Portuguese of RKO 281. Uh, <laughs> which I have to tell you overcomes all those uh, disadvantages and then some. Um, yeah. And I, I'd be curious not just to talk about that movie, which for the benefit of anybody listening in is about the battle over Citizen Kane and how Orson Welles uh, triumphed um, over William Randolph Hearst's efforts to squelch it, um, but also about where it and the ideas of genius that it, propounds, um, you know, a uh, uh, map onto your career. I mean, you're somebody who's written a play about Mark Rothko and, you know, obviously written that about Orson Welles and you've written a whole movie called Genius about, um, you know, uh, Tom Wolfe's relationship with his editor, um, you know. And I'm currently writing Michael Jackson. So, yeah, now, it's very much up my alley. Which is interesting because, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Um, uh, is it National Geographic that's doing these series of shows uh, about and called Genius, where they started with, I think, Leonardo, and then they did Picasso, right? Picasso, and then now Aretha Franklin. Um, you know, what makes a genius? And, and is it a label that fits comfortably on everybody from, um, you know, Orson Welles to Michael Jackson? It does. It does to me. You know, it's you know, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. You know, genius. I think mostly probably has to do with innovation. It's someone seeing something that other people have looked at, but they've never seen it before. You know, when when Orson Welles studied movies, and as you know, he made a big study of, of Stagecoach. 
Mm-hmm. You know, John Ford is a great director. There's no question. One of one of the sort of founders of of contemporary or American cinema. But he studied it and he saw things they hadn't done. And he sat there with Greg Tola and said, "Why is these two people not in focus at the same time? Can we do that? What if you put the camera down here rather than up there?" And they used Stagecoach as a model for all those discussions. So he was looking at a form and seeing something new, which is exactly what Mark Rothko did. You know, he took the forms that were evolving from, you know, the sort of post-impressionists and Matisse, mm-hmm. studied them, studied everything that came before him from Goya and Velasquez, and created something the world had never seen before. You know, and I think that's probably, t- that's my definition of a genius, someone who says, People have not seen this before, and maybe they ought. And is a genius a genius every day, or do they, you know, attain flights of genius in otherwise not quite so? I think it's a, I think it's a lifetime of preparation for a light to go on. You know, it's a, there's, a, there's a great story. When Mike Todd did Around the World in 80 Days, you know, all these celebrities did cameos in it. And Ronald Coleman did One Day filming in India, mm-hmm. and they got him a Rolls Royce for the day. And someone said to him, you know, why do you get a Rolls Royce for one day? And he said, I don't get the Rolls Royce for one day. I get it for my entire life. And I think that's right. I think, you know, if you look at someone like Michael Jackson I'm working on now, his entire experience as a human being and as an artist led him to thriller. He didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to write this album that's going to be the biggest selling album ever and it's going to change the landscape of popular music and bring African-American music to white kids in the suburbs. His whole life led him to, the, to every individual decision he made about every song, the same way Orson Welles' life led him to every shot or Tom Wolfe's life led him to every line or every word. And then, there, of course, there's the case of somebody like Wells, and in a certain way, maybe Howard Hughes and other people you've written about, people who've been a genius, and the genius is not somehow a resource as accessible to them afterward. I guess maybe Michael Jackson falls into that category, too, um, as it's been before. Is that, does that, is that a, 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 an area of fascination um, for you? Well, of course. Heard? I mean, it, I mean, how can it not be? You know, I'm a, I'm a living creator. I'm a living dramatist. You know, and you think about, you know, has, has, have I done the best I can do, and will any of it linger on beyond me in any way? You know, and, you know, unlike some of those people we're talking about, I live a very sort of subdued life. And I have a, I have a quote over my computer, which is from Flaubert, mm. a man who knew how to revolutionize literature. And he wrote, be regular and ordinary in your life, like a bourgeois, so that you may be violent and original in your work. Mm-hmm. And that's how I live. That's why I go to bed at eight. And that's why I get up at four, you know, and I go to desk and I work like a banker. But I think the temptation for a Thomas Wolfe or an Orson Welles or Howard Hughes is to live as violently as their work, you know, and, and that probably led to um, difficulties that they had continuing to do their work with, with regularity or innovation. So you worked on, or at least had in your drawer, genius for, I think, at least a dozen years. Um, what's in the drawer now? What, what, have, what, what, do you, what do you half suspect may never get made, but um, it's your fondest secret wish? 
Well, I wrote I wrote a movie called Night and Day for Michael Mann, mm. which is a genuine noir L.A. Uh, sort of um, mystery, which which you know it has to do completely with a Hollywood fixer, which mm. is along with The Aviator, you know, one of my favorite scripts I've ever written, and I just think it's too expensive and big. And also, quite frankly, I'm dealing with 1938 now, so I see never see another fedora as long <laughs> as I live. That's okay for the moment. But, you know, I'm working on, you know, I have a play I want to write, so I'm just waiting for the Penny Dreadful Post to be done so I can start working on that. I'm working on a musical. So there's lots of stuff coming up that's really sort of exciting for me. Believe me, if I had things in the drawer, I'd be tossing them out now because Netflix would buy anything at this point. Now don't 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 quote me on that. <laughs> uh, um, well, anything of yours, they'd be fools not to. Um, you know, just free associating here, um, Herman Mankiewicz is an important character in Archaic 281 as the co-author of the script of Citizen Kane. You must know that, that David Fincher has a whole movie scheduled to come out later this year about Mankiewicz with Gary Oldman playing him. Do you know anything about that? What's going on there? I don't, other than I'm excited to see it. <laughs> you know, because like that, that really, I mean, how could, you, how could a drama just not get excited by the Orson Welles, you know, Herman Mankiewicz relationship. It's just, it's just a thrilling piece of drama, so I'm delighted. I'm excited to see it. What, how do you approach writing about and dramatizing um, a right life, which, we've, which you've done a couple of times before? It sounds to me like you don't think of your own life as particularly cinematic. Um, no, I, not remotely. I, I, I think um, it's safe to say that you at least have never inflicted on a viewer a montage of a wastebasket filling up with crumpled sheets? No, not, not yet anyway. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you bring that creative process to life in the case of somebody who's not, you know, daubing paint on canvas? You know, I think it's, I, I treat uh, the artists as workers, and I treat their art as process. You know, when I was writing Red about Roscoe, it was about, okay, what do you actually do in a studio? What do you do every single day to make art? You don't just, you don't just paint a canvas and say, well, there's a great art that needs to hang in the mat. You know, you do things. You, 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 you stretch the canvases. You, you make the size. You prime the canvas. You know, you mix the paints with powders and with eggs and with, you know, or it's like, how do you build an airplane? How do you make a beautiful, innovative airplane? You feel the rivets. You know, you look at the blueprints. You actually do the work that's required. So, you know, in any area where I've explored the life of a creator, you know, in any way, you know, I've just tried to deal with the nuts and bolts of what it actually is rather than the theoretical idea of, oh, you're a genius and the muse is going to hand you something because no one hands you anything. You know, these men and women work incredibly hard, you know, for what they, what they create. Um, and so that, that to me is interesting to an audience because, you know, I didn't know how a painting really came together, how an abstract expressionist color field painting came together until I researched it and then dramatized it. So I think that's interesting to an audience. I also think it's authentic about how, you know, works of innovation are made. Does this strike you? Now, mind you, as mind you, uh, there's, a, you know, there's probably many writers, maybe most writers who disagree with me, you know, who are like, they do believe in the sort of poetic muse. And that, those sudden flashes of inspiration probably do, you know, inspire them to great, you know, to great torrents of uh, creativity. Uh, but I'm just more methodical by nature. If screenwriting had a muse, what would she be like? 
I'll have to think about that. Okay, fair enough. I'll let you off the hook. Um, well, wow. Um, I do have a couple more questions here. If, of course. If, oh, good. I'm glad. Um, well, you mentioned the present moment and how, in fact, that was at least to some degree an inciting incident for your creation of, of Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Um, and in fact, you did, there is a scene early in Penny Dreadful of a uh, protest that turns into a race riot, a police riot, call it what you like. Um, how did you approach the writing of that scene, and how do you look back on it this week? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's I'm glad you asked that, because it's a provocative question, particularly right now. You know, and, and you know, the, the impetus for City of Angels was entirely the political moment, uh, not in any way sort of or kind of. It's, it was exactly a response to the world we're living in where, you know, we saw the rise of, you know, dangerous political demagoguery, foreign influence in our electoral process, the marginalization and demonization of ethnic communities where things like social engineering, a wall or a highway, mm -hmm. you know, become destructive acts. And the question I ask myself is, and what happens to the people who are destroyed because of that? And, you know, L.A. then and now had a very, has and had a very fraught political and ethnic climate. You know, 100 years before City of Angels, Los Angeles was Mexico. Mm -hmm. And the roots of the Mexican culture are deep and frequently ignored because they've been subsumed by other things, by Hollywood and by consumerism and by the beach. Um, but it is who we are, and it is who we were. And so I think it was important to dramatize that. And you can't tell any story of Los Angeles truly that doesn't deal with the Mexican-American experience, and you can't tell the story of a freeway without talking about the communities that were impacted by it. So that was all completely the motivation for writing it, this wasn't this wasn't a cerebral act. This was this was a cry of anger and somewhat despair about where we are now, how we got here, and where we might be going. And what's really interesting is you've seen the first what six episodes? Yep. Well, the last two episodes, you know, and I can get you incomplete versions of them. Um, I will take you up on that. Are are sort of precisely this moment? You know, there's a lynching of a person really? of color. Mm -hmm. There's a peaceful protest march that turns into a titanic race riot. And it is so this moment right now that, you know, I wish someone would write an editorial about it. Maybe you. You know, because <laughs> not to promote the show, but just to yeah. say this happened and it's still happening. And how do they address it then? How are we addressing it now every single moment? You know, it's it's... It's shocking because people who know the episodes, uh, they're just talking to me constantly about the imagery that we filmed months ago and now we're seeing in Santa Monica on, on Fairfax and in Brooklyn. Well, I'm on a different 30s-related hobby horse these days. My last piece for the Times was trying to resurrect the Federal Writers Project, but um, <laughs> I, I hope I get a, get a chance to talk to you again about, about these things once I have seen uh, the last episode. I mean, I guess it raises the question, when you're writing about something that feels so contemporary without for a minute asking you how the show comes out, because as, a, as a, you know, a lover of storytelling, I really don't want to know, 
but how do you approach the ending of something that feels like as much an ongoing state of affairs as, as, as current affairs do right now? I mean, you right. know, what, how do you decide what you want to leave an audience with, not specifically or, or you know, in terms of storytelling, but, but in terms of mood? I think, and- I think, this, I think this show... Mm-hmm. Not generally. I can only talk about this show right now in relation to what we're saying. You know, you want to leave them with a challenge, oh. which is here's, here's the story we've told up to now, and we're going to keep telling this story. What are you going to do about your life in relation to it? If it's touched you in any way, if it's spoken to you in any way, if you like some of the characters, you know, how are you going to respond to what the United States of America is right now? I, I can't wait to see how that comes together as words and images. Um, can I ask you just one last question, which um, has uh, you know, this podcast is still very embryonic and evolving. And if the gods of Zoom hadn't conspired against this, this too would have been um, a visual interview in which I would have prevailed upon you to do something I mean more and more to get all of our interviewees to do, which is to uh, hold up one book, maybe a book you've owned as long as you've owned any other book, and um, talk about what it's meant to you, whether it made a reader out of you or um, it's, it's just you know, under your skin in a way that um, you know, has evolved over the years and, and never abandoned you. Is there a book like that for you? Assuredly, it's, it would be it would be Hamlet. You know, it would be my dad's copy of Hamlet that he put in. <laughs> you know, and because that that is a piece of work. You know, it's the poem immortal, as Shakespeare says. I think it is because I think the character that he created in those circumstances are the most universal. And I've never known a character more complex than Hamlet. And my opinion of him changes constantly. Sometimes I love him. Sometimes I have admiration for him. Sometimes I hate him. Sometimes I think he's a bitch. You know, but but there are so many colors. You know, he is painted with every color known to God in that character. You know, and that always inspires me because, like I said before, it's like all you want as a dramatist is to create characters that confuse you and vex you and want you to keep exploring them, especially in television. You know, in a movie or a play, you have your liminal two or two and a half hours, and you have to sort of come to some summation. With ongoing characters, you know, you just want to keep turning them in the light, you know, so the different facets get shined sort of brilliantly in a way that surprise you and hopefully will surprise an audience. And, and if Coriolanus had made, you know, a billion dollars and people <laughs> had begged you to, uh, to turn your hand to adapting Hamlet next, how would you have gone about it? That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, I actually had some discussions about this with an actor. Can you, you say know, who? It, it's, I cannot. Okay. Uh, it's an actor I've worked with before and know really well, you know, but it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the ultimate, the ultimate Gorgon. It's like, do you want, do you want to do this? Because you're never going to succeed. Is the failure <laughs> going to be worthy enough? You know, mm. because you can't, you can only shine a particular light, you know. But yeah, I would, probably. I, mean, I think I'm, I've reached the point in my career, I'm like, what, really, what have I got to lose at this point? You know, I have the Tony. I own my house. You know, it's like, what are they going to take away? Would you keep the title or what would you change it to? 
Of course I keep the title and I keep the language. You have to. That's that's the oh. that's the that's the trick. That's the game. Well it's a game you play incredibly well and I didn't dare hope that talking to you uh would be as much fun and as provocative as watching your movies at least once and in some cases more than once and I hope in the not too far off future seeing the end of, of City of Angels, which you call City of Angels even though it's under the penny of penny dreadful banner. Is that yeah, you just, think of? just for just for brevity. Gotcha. Um, well, uh, may I may I please issue you uh, a, 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 an invitation to come see Libro Shmibros in Boyle Heights at some point. You will find yourself in a room of thousands upon thousands of books available for free um, to borrow and one to keep to the entire neighborhood and and all Angelinos beyond. And I think you you'd find you'd find a home there. Indeed, I would. Okay, then. We'll All right, excellent. Well, watch the rest of the episodes. I'll get them to you. Then let me know what you think. And if you feel inspired that you want to write about it, fine with me. Uh, I, I will take you up on that, sir. Thank you, Mr. Logan. Right. Thanks on I'll behalf of everybody. I, I so hey. appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So ends another episode of Libro Schmibros, recorded at the bilingual nonprofit Libro Schmibros Lending Library in Boyle Heights. By all means, follow us online in all the old familiar places or email us via info at libroshmibros.org. By the way, we couldn't do this podcast without the whole Libros team, Quatemoc, Colleen, Diana, and Alberto. And all of them would kill me if I didn't add this. Please consider visiting libroshmibros.org, hitting the donut button, <laughs> the donate button, and giving us a gift. We put good free books into people's hands five days a week here at Libros, right across from Mariachi Plaza, up in the old Boyle Hotel. I'm David Kippen, and there'll always be a free book for you and thousands more to borrow here at Libros Schmibro.